Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2. Please listen. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Vine family. It's good to see you all. I buy into the belief that the new year is a time to shake things up, to practice some intention, to make resolutions. Who here made a resolution in the beginning of January? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, not many hands. Yeah, we, we kind of just knew that let's just not even commit to anything, right? Let's just, yeah, I was one of those people, you know, I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just throw out some, some goals here. Let's have a dry January. It's turned into a dry Tuesday night. You know, that's what it's turned into my life. Uh, you know, for those who have tried and have failed to, held, uh, to hold resolutions, you're not alone. I read a report that by this time in the year, 80% of people who made resolutions have already given up. So uh, we are in good company there. Um, as a community that is Jesus-centered, we would like to begin our year with greater intention around how do we begin this season of our life focused around Jesus? How do we put Jesus at the center of my life? And how do we put the life of Jesus in the center of our communal life? In all of our differences and all of our, uh, the ways in which we see life differently, what would it look like for a community like ours to put Christ at the center and for us to live into that well? Well, for us, this is the reason why um, we have begun this year with 50 days in the Gospel of Luke, is as we enter into this new year, we really want to begin it with looking at the life, the claims, the example, the promises that we find in Jesus. And so I'm curious, who all has been listening to our podcast? Yeah? So this is something that is a labor of love, and it is a labor. It's a lot of work, but uh, our own community, we've created a podcast for these 50 days that we would hear the entire Gospel of Luke in 50 days, and these, uh, uh, these scripture reflections are also broken up with prayer prompts 
So if you haven't done it, go ahead and pull out your phone. This is a guilt-free place to have your phone out. Um, and you can take uh, a QR code there and sign up that way. Um, and I hope it's been an encouragement for those who have done it. Is anyone else super distracted by trying to figure out which member of our church's voice it is that's reading these? Uh, I'll, I'll just let you guys know later on if that'll be helpful for you. So as we're going through these 50 days, as we're hearing and reflecting upon Scripture, as we're seeing Scripture as a prompt for us to meditate and to pray with Christ, we wanted to use our Sunday mornings as a time to, to pause and reflect on one of the passages that we've heard in this past week. And uh, for us to look at the power of this gospel, that we could learn to see what Jesus does and to expect that work and that power in our midst today. So before jumping into Luke, I wanted to zoom out a little bit before we actually look at a particular passage. I wanted to, to stop and just ask some questions about where this gospel came from. Because for many of us, we see the Bible as God's word to us, this timeless, perfect, complicated uh, scripture for us. And this is all true. But the way in which God comes to us was through people. So although Scripture was this, what we believe to be an inspired by God's presence and spirit, it was also a human work. People wrote the Bible from their particular point of view, uh, their personalities, their lenses. This is, how, uh, this is how Scripture came to us. And so it is okay, it is honestly wise for us to stop and ask, so where did this gospel come from? You know, who wrote it, who did they write it to, and why did they write it? So I'd like to go through some technical aspects. We're just going to geek out a little bit on the Bible, if you can do that with me, because I think it helps us actually go deeper into Scripture when we see it like this. It is believed that the author of this writing was a man named Luke. Just a, I was waiting for anyone to beat me on that one. Nope. Uh, Luke was a traveling companion, not of Jesus, but of Paul. He was a co-worker of Paul. If you guys uh, have read the New Testament, much of the letters that we find in the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote to churches that he helped plant, all these little communities uh, that he helped start. And Luke was a co-worker, a traveling companion of Paul. He saw how the gospel was moving into places that it was unexpected to move into, how communities were formed and the gospel took root. And after seeing this, Paul had this desire to actually go back to Jesus. He actually had this desire to actually investigate who Jesus was. But he did so in his unique perspective. And who was Luke? Luke was known to be a doctor. You will find it oftentimes in some of the writings that Paul wrote, the letters, that he actually calls Luke the doctor. And he was believed to be a Gentile. So he was not a part of the Jewish community. So those two aspects are really helpful for us to see when you look at Luke's gospel. One of the ways in which it's different from the other gospels is that it focuses on miracles, no wonder if, of course, like a, if a doctor has that perspective, he's going to be really interested in knowing, like, all right, so how did this miracle take place? It's like if Jim Stafford wrote a gospel, he might actually care to know about, was Jesus actually a good carpenter, right? Because Jim loves woodworking. And what if Jesus was an awful carpenter, but a really good Messiah? Would that just be awesome? Um, but we don't know that because... No one cared about his woodworking skills. Luke cared about the miracles. But also as a Gentile, what you'll see as you read through the Gospel of Luke, 
He really cares about what happens to people who are outside the religious circle of inclusion. Those people who were not included in the religious elite. Luke cares deeply if, in fact, he was a Gentile. He would notice when the gospel goes to people who are usually excluded. And you will read throughout this gospel that Jesus is a surprising Savior. He seems to hop over those who are expected to be on the inside and see the gospel go to those not only who are on the outside of the religious circle, but for those whom the religious elite ostracized, those who are cast out, those who are dismissed and judged and shamed. And Luke goes, it is those people who are finding their way into the kingdom of God. This is how Luke's perspective is, and I think we should still expect that in our midst here today. So that is who Luke is. He's, um, he cares deeply to show that the gospel is going to the outside. He cares about miracles. Also in Luke's gospel, you'll see that he focuses more on women than any other gospel. You'll see this as we read and we study these different passages. He focuses on women's roles. All, uh, and it's a sad truth in that day and age, women were on the outside. They were devalued and uh, seen as second-class citizens. Uh, but not so in Jesus' kingdom, not so with what Luke sees. So what else do we know about this writing? The Gospel of Luke is actually part one of a two-part series. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is part one, and the second part is the book of Acts, if you know that. You can see it, you can see the similarities in how these two begin. They begin with such uh, similar uh, points of view Uh, the way that Luke begins his gospel is he doesn't just jump into the action. He sets it up. He sets it up and he actually addresses uh, who his audience is, and it's this word Theophilus. You'll see it in both um, both of these introductions. But he's writing to a person named Theophilus. There's two different understandings. I'm sorry for geeking out so much, but I think it's really helpful. There's two different understandings of what who Theophilus is. One is Theophilus is a kind of symbolic name. If you were to break down Theophilus, Theo means God, which is where we get the word theology. It's the study of God. And Philo is the word for love. There's different uh, definitions of love. There's like um, different meanings of love, like a, a romantic love, a familial love. This word for love is that of deep companionship. And so some people believe Theophilus is just a generic, it's like if I were to say Beloved of God, you know, that's like, there's no one particular named beloved of God, but that's how some people translate Theophilus or friend of God. So that's one understanding. There's another point of view that the word Theophilus is actually uh, about one person in particular. And the reason why some people believe this is because what precedes Theophilus is this word most excellent. And that's not like a Bill and Ted type of excellent. This is like, most excellent is usually used to, uh, to, to describe someone who is in power, a ruler, a governor, an authority, someone in prominence and power. And so um, that title was reserved for someone. So perhaps Luke was writing to someone, a governor, a ruler, and he's writing these letters and these accounts so that the person who is very least likely, the one on... Uh, who's religiously and ethnically other, could hear and understand the stories of Jesus. 
to maybe even to help spread this gospel to those in whom they have influence over. So like many other scripture, scripture, things of scripture, the honest answer is we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It doesn't mean that we turn off our brain, but we don't know for sure who is this written to. But we have this privilege to know uh, Luke's goal in writing this gospel. And it's the very beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke is saying that there's a lot of different stories of what Jesus has done. And, there's, and for Luke, this word fulfilled will be a thematic word for the rest of the telling of his gospel. So there's a lot, a lot of accounts of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And why did you write this, Luke? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That is why Luke has written this gospel, to show that all the things that have been fulfilled around us, that this person or these people could know with certainty of that which they've been taught. To be certain about the experiences that people had of Jesus. Would anyone like certainty in their life? <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that seem fuzzy and gray, but what, but, what, uh, but what Luke is wanting is that they would be certain about Jesus and to may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. What, what Luke is saying here is that these stories of Jesus aren't just fables. They're not myths. These are memories these are experiences. These are events in people's life. And I've done the hard work of going around and collecting people's experiences with Jesus. And I want you to know it so that you could be sure of who Jesus is. In my life, as things get fuzzier and fuzzier, as things get less and less certain, I am grateful that Jesus wants to be known for us to fully know Jesus. So, if you've been following along with this podcast and these daily readings, you have seen all that's happened in the last seven days. For those who, who haven't done it, you're just seven days behind. Don't worry. Just jump in. The water's warm. You can just jump in right where you are. Um, we have considered so far the stories around Christmas, uh, Mary and Elizabeth's experience in these days. We've also we've read about the birth of Jesus, the calling of John the Baptist, Jesus' own baptism, and today we, we read and we studied Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. But there's been one picture for me that's been really powerful. It's been one that has stayed with me. And honestly, for me, it's a thematic foreshadowing. This one story is a thematic foreshadowing of the rest of Luke's gospel. In this one story, we will find so many elements that are indicative of Jesus' life, his ministry, his kingdom. It's found in Luke chapter 2, and one of the reasons why I love it is this is the only gospel we find this story. It didn't make it to Matthew or Mark or John's gospel. And it's like, for me, I imagine Luke going around and ask, asking people, what was your experience? Of, what, did you, what did you hear about Jesus? 
And Luke hears this one story, and for him, he's like, how did it not make it into the other ones? Because it's all here. So let's, let's look at this. This is in Luke chapter 2, uh, it's beginning in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So from Jesus' upbringing, everything that Jesus' parents did was to raise him faithfully as a Jewish young man from the Jewish tradition. Jesus did not come to debunk Judaism, didn't come to uh, disqualify it. He came to fulfill it. Remember that word, fulfill. He came to fulfill all of the promises, all of the work that God was doing. Um, it was a requirement in that time for, in the, in the, from Leviticus that 33 days after a firstborn is born, the family should go to the temple and make a sacrifice. So after your firstborn, you have nothing else going on. A month later, you go to the temple, you make a sacrifice, devoting the firstborn son especially to, and mother to be purified in God's eyes. So that's what Joseph and Mary do. They're just living as a righteous, faithful member of that community. And this is lost on us. But there is a detail in this that, that would stand out for those in the original community. And what, it's, what, what the detail is, is there's a standard that a family should present a sacrifice of a lamb for a firstborn male. Now, lambs were not cheap. Um, yeah, they weren't cheap. And so there are some families who couldn't afford it. So there's a provision given in Scripture that if a family cannot afford something like that, a pair of doves or pigeons would be okay. So think about that. What do we find here? We find here Mary and Joseph are members of poverty. They didn't have affluence. They didn't have a bunch of excess provision. And for me, this is powerful because God did not choose the wealthy or powerful or the prominent, this home for the Son of God to be raised in. Instead, Jesus grew up knowing what it was like moving from paycheck to paycheck. This would be the home in which the Savior of the world would be raised. No wonder Jesus has an eye for those on the margin, uh, the poor, the needy. Jesus was familiar with it. And it's worth pointing out in a culture that we live in that is so obsessed with give, giving our, best, our kids our best foot forward, giving them you know, so much opportunity and comforts and protection. God's ideal choice for the home was the one that was, was meager. The means were, were small. Though they were poor in finances, they were rich in character, and that is the home which God entrusted Jesus to. This is what matters to God, is the character of our hearts. So that day happens, and when the sacrifice is to be made, and Mary and Joseph, they go to the temple with their signs of their poverty with them, right? Like, it's not like we can just drop something in some Dropbox. They're displaying to everyone that they don't have enough. Um, and so they're going there with their diaper bag, and uh, every, you know, everything is set up, but then something bizarre happens. There's this man named Simeon 
who all of a sudden is drawn into the story. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. God had come to Simeon. And notice where God met Simeon was in his waiting. Simeon was actively waiting. He was holding out hope. He was searching for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is like finding comfort. Comfort from the oppression of Rome. Comfort from empty religion, perhaps. For the ways in which Israel was not reflecting the ways of God. Simeon felt this burden and was waiting for someone to come and bring peace. Maybe that's you too. Maybe there's a place in your life where you have been waiting and longing and searching to find peace, to find comfort, waiting to find hope. And God made this promise to Simeon, and I think Simeon gives us a beautiful example. God made this promise to Simeon that he would not die before he saw and beheld the Savior. Can you imagine what it would have been like to hear that promise that you're not going to be dismissed from this world until your eyes have seen the Savior? It's going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen. Your eyes will see the great deliverer. But was it months? Was it years before that Simeon had this promise? And every time he saw injustice, maybe Simeon said, God, why not today? (laughs) How about today is a good day for a Savior to come? Every time... He felt the tinge of sorrow and mourning and remorse. Why not today? But in the midst of that waiting, Simeon was faithful. And then one day, the same voice that spoke the promise to Simeon before came to him again and said, Simeon, it's today. Go to the temple. You're going to see your Savior Verse 27 said, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Imagine imagine that day, the scene on that day. The temple courts perhaps were loud and busy. People were coming and going. People were greeting each other. They're getting their coffee and their donut holes. Money changers were there. People had their sacrifices, their animals, their loud, you know, they're trying to take care of that. People were preparing to sing and to worship and to pray. And Simeon was in the in the corner of the courts, just watching, going, is that the person? Is it him? Is it her? Who's the Savior? And I wonder, when Simeon saw the religious leader who was teaching with authority, who seemed to know all the right answers, I wonder if he was like, surely that would be the Savior. And the spirit was silent. Or maybe it was someone from royalty, someone from some wealth, someone who had power, great respect and influence, they came in. Simeon was looking and waiting. No. And then this young couple walks in, holding the signs of their own poverty with a newborn. And the Spirit said, there he is. Go meet your Savior. This helpless, poor infant the Savior of the world. And what does Simeon do when he sees Jesus? Verse 28, Simeon took Jesus in his arms. This is like when we need to 
remember scripture is also like what happens. Can you imagine as a parent, like just walking in and someone just grabs your kid? Remember like those days in the grocery store for those who have kids where a stranger reach in and grab your kid's cheek and pinch it? Or is that is like off the table now with this pandemic? We're not allowed to do that? You know, like hands off. Can you peer out before you do that? I know other parents were like, no, no, take them. Take them for a spin. Go for it. Go for it. No tag backs. No, 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 no. You're going to take it for a while. Um, you know, Simeon, after his waiting, he is now beholding the Savior. And I wonder how long he was looking at Jesus' face, the face of the Christ, the great Redeemer, in his hands holding the Savior of the world. Simeon, after all of his waiting, why did Simeon have this blessing, this moment with the Savior? Yes, Scripture said he was devout and he was righteous, but I also think Simeon had this profound experience because he didn't stop waiting. He didn't give up. He didn't zone out. He actually stayed engaged in waiting, which is so hard for us to wait with expectation, with longing. But he did, and he experienced the promises that he found from God perhaps years before in this day. And Jesus came, and Simeon did what many people would do in this experience of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, they broke into song. And he said this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. This is the second time in Luke's gospel where someone calls themselves a servant. I am the Lord's servant. Who was the first one for those who have been following with us? Mary. So now Simeon's echoing Mary's song. I am the, I'm the Lord's servant for my eyes have seen your salvation It's not a thing that God is doing. It is who God is. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. You see here what Luke is saying here is like, this is, yeah, this is coming from Israel, but it is meant for the whole world. Oftentimes people talk about Luke's gospel, they talk about Jesus as the cosmic Christ. He can't be pinned into a certain box for a certain people group. No one gets to claim Jesus as their own. It's the other way. Jesus gets to claim whomever Jesus desires to be his own. And so we find here that Simeon, from the beginning before Jesus has done anything, is praising the one who is the Savior of the world. And I love that phrase, that after all of his waiting, he's holding Jesus and he says, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. This old man, Simeon, he likens himself to a servant whose only job was to scan the horizon and wait for the long-awaited visitor. He now reports to the master God in the song that he has sung. He says, my job is done, my duties fulfilled, and he claims his privilege that his long watch is over. It's been fulfilled His life is complete, and the consolation, the comfort he's been waiting for is finally here. But notice, this is not just a peace for Israel. It's my salvation for all the nations. In verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. You got to know that this confirmed every experience they had, the angels, the birth, the experiences around that. It's confirmation that indeed their son 
is going to be the Messiah, the Savior. What an awesome moment. And I think Mary and Joseph would have wished that the moment would end there because now it's going to get a little bit weird. (laughs) Verse 34, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And then Simeon walks away. (laughs) Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, Can you clarify that, please? (laughs) Interesting blessing. Simeon receives the fulfillment of the promise on that day and finally sees a Savior, but then he offers offers a promise to Mary. Simeon promises that this Prince of Peace will cause a lot of conflict, that this Prince of Peace will reveal the thoughts within the minds and the hearts of many people. He will cause the rising of some and the falling of others. And as we will see in these 50-day journey that this promise, this, this blessing that was given over Mary is going to come true in so many ways that Jesus will reveal so much in people's hearts and minds that, that we have a, a, a tendency to hide. What we also find in Jesus is that Jesus lifts up and he lowers. Who does he lift up? He lifts up the lowly, the poor, the meek, the ostracized. Those will find in Jesus' kingdom a lifting. And who are made low? The self-sufficient, the morally elite, the pompous, find themselves in Jesus' kingdom made low. Oh, and a sword will pierce your soul too, Mary. What is that sword? Well, Mary is going to experience the pain that no parent, uh, their heart has been created to experience when their most prized uh, thing in their life, their child, will be taken away. And one day, Mary will see the rising and falling of her own son the rising of her son upon a cross and the falling of Jesus into a grave. And you have to know on that day that Mary perhaps looked back at this word, this prophetic word spoken of her, and it probably felt like a a sword was piercing her own side as Jesus' side was being pierced as well. I wonder if Simeon's words came back to her. But Jesus wasn't done fulfilling every promise. Yes, Jesus was raised up in Lord, but he would be raised up once again. And Jesus' story and our story does not end with that sword, but it ends with a final rising, a rising of hope and of joy everlasting. That is what we will find with our Savior and the author of our faith in this gospel of Luke. And the key to understanding the rest of this gospel, this collection of eyewitnesses, is all found here because I think Simeon's journey ends where our journey begins. Simeon sees this long-promised Savior, and I wonder if Simeon would extend that Savior to us, for us to behold, for us to take our longings, our hopes, our desires, and take it to God, a Savior who surprises and challenges us with all of our expectations, the one who has come to us. Here, we find that comfort, that consolation in Jesus. So for those who've grown weary, I just want to give you 
an encouragement. I think if Simeon were here today, he would say this to you. He would say, don't give up. Don't stop waiting. Don't end that sacred act of taking your longings to God again and again. Hold on to the promises of Christ. His words are trustworthy and true. Listen, seek, wait, watch. And perhaps even in these 50 days, we might find ourselves beholding the Savior once again. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.